Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series called Crossover Moments, where we explore key moments of personal transformation. We talk to industry experts about the pivotal moments that led them to question and ultimately reject or let go of conventional approaches to sustainable fashion, breaking defaults and choosing alternatives. In this episode, my co-host and co-founder, Jessie Lee, are in conversation with Ibru Debag, who shares with us the story behind her crossover moment, which led her to question and ultimately let go of conventional approaches to sustainable fashion. As the daughter of a Turkish cotton farmer, Ibru spent most of her childhood running around the fields. From a small atelier making doll dresses to a successful career spanning 27 years at a premium denim manufacturer, Ibru has a passion for fashion and textiles that runs deep in her veins. In this episode, she describes how she came to realize that even though she really believed in all of the things that the company she was working for was doing on the sustainability front, it also wasn't going to have the deep systemic impact our sector so desperately needs. This led her to switch jobs and begin working for a larger scale denim producer operating in Pakistan, and also to a mindset switch. She shares how she came to the realization that real impact requires a lot more than using sustainability as a market differentiator. It requires embracing what she calls our entanglements, our codependence. If you are new to this mini-series and wondering what a crossover moment is, I encourage you to go back to the series intro episode, where we talk about what this term means and why we thought it was interesting to explore. Ibru, if you could share a little bit about your entry point into the world of apparel production and just give us some context for the different types of positions you've held, because I know you've been in this industry for a long time in a lot of different spaces. Yes. And actually, I will say that my involvement with the fashion industry started when I was around six years old. But of course, I did not really know that I was in the fashion industry back then. I'm the daughter of a cotton farmer and I have spent quite many summers running around the fields. And later on, my family started running a kids clothing brand. My parents actually together. My mother was designing and making the prototypes and my father was actually operating the sewing machines. He was sewing the garments himself. And this was in our hometown in Adana, which is actually a cotton producing city within Turkey, in the south part of Turkey. And everything was being manufactured out of their small atelier, which was kind of like in the background of our house. And so I was helping my parents during the summer holidays and I would be selling out of season clothes in discount baskets in front of our store, in our friendly neighborhood. And all these were actually kind of handmade. 
and I would then sneak into the atelier. I would sew dresses for my dolls in the atelier. I really did not understand the concept of discount even then. I mean, if something was of value, why would not it keep its price or value and had to be sold for less? And I would get like the premium if I were able to sell this at discount, I would get my pocket money just because they were out of season, because they were singled out, because they were unwanted. I started having these questions in my mind. And I really loved clothes then, and I still do now. And I think it was quite inevitable that fashion and textiles got into my blood at this really early stage. I hold a bachelor science degree as a textile engineer, no surprise. And my entry in to the actual industry was due to a large HR ad I saw on a newspaper. And the company profiled was seeking management trainees. The company wasn't mentioned. And they were seeking management trainees to write the future of denim, which was, again, not so common for the textile industry back into the 1990s. I was then torn between my desire to do an MBA or to work for a company and my former boss, and I would call him my mentor then, suggested that I take the real life experience. He said, just onboard the company. This is your MBA. And he said I would realize all my passion while working and he would send me to whatever course I wanted to be visiting later on during my career. And his desk, this is the first thing I remember, his desk had legs dressed in jeans and cowboy boots. <laughs> and I was... No way! <laughs> and I was truly intrigued. I mean, I couldn't say no to him. <laughs> and he kept his promise later on as well and sent me to Harvard Business School and many others along the way. So I had the privilege of working for this premium league denim manufacturer for a major part of my professional life, 27 years to count, so quite a long time. And in this former company, we also had a premium league of customer portfolio and started engaging voluntarily with sustainable applications in the early 2000s. But of course, we weren't calling them sustainability or anything else. The orientation was not based around resource conservation, although it ultimately was defined as an outcome. But the dialogue was more centered around building beyond transactional relations with our customers. Tell me if I got it right or if I'm putting words in your mouth, but in a way to kind of like claim some power in the relationship. Yes. To say you are offering something that other people could not offer. Yes. And, you know, I mean, I was let build it myself, which was, again, a great, great experience because not much definition around marketing, customer relations existed in our industry back then. This is like really, truly early 90s we're talking about. And I'm not undermining this whole work we were doing, but I now understand better that it was only the tip of an iceberg. And despite the great we were doing, I did not really understand then that I was seeing this very incomplete and disconnected picture. I had never really witnessed disparity 
inequality, unjust working conditions on the factory level and naively considered the full industry to be aligned with the same norms. We talked about the environment and the fact that actually the factory was too close to the city itself, but this was not a true threat or disturbance as it meant easy access for the factory workforce. And we had all kinds of pollution filters in place. So I did not really consider this as a problem. I dismissed, I would say, all the true content of sustainability in this almost unreal world. To me, the factory was not a part of a system, a bigger system, but it was an isolated best case example. So I was truly enjoying that. And And it truly was a best case example. I mean, I created and led a project with UN and UNICEF where the company I worked for, based in Turkey, provided training, infrastructure and market development possibilities for an NGO based in Lebanon with the goal to send girls back to school. This was what we called the Uniform Project and we were loving it. I thought we were connecting the dots in a way. We were, but again, all this was that tip of the iceberg. And we supported this project for a good three years. And then the connections died off as other sustainability aspects became more important. Like this time it was water. We draw attention to the importance of saving water by having photo shoots in the desert with sand dune surfers instead of water skiers. And it was all very cute and impactful in a way, or I perceived them to be so. But again, by no means, I don't mean to undermine all these projects because I love them dearly. They're dear to my heart. But I realized later on that they were conducted in isolation. What you said reminds me of like an anecdote in a book that I think about a lot in our work. It's in a book by Otto Scharmer. In the book, he's describing a restaurant in Philadelphia. And the owner of that restaurant, you know, spent more than 20 years pioneering sustainable business practices in her restaurant. And he describes how she basically realized that there's just You know, she was doing everything great in her restaurant, but that there's just no such thing as one sustainable business, because no matter how good the practices are, like within her restaurant, no matter if, you know, she composted and recycled and bought from farmers who were using renewable energy and sort of did all of the things, you know, she had to, he describes her realization that she had to go outside of her own company and to start working in cooperation with others, and especially with her competitors, to build a whole system based on those values. And I think that's kind of what you're describing. That's exactly what I'm describing. Because, yes, we were communicating all these great projects with enthusiasm to a very well-informed and mostly aware customer base as well, you know, I mean, so it started becoming even more isolated than the reality. I could only realize this later on, of course, I mean, I didn't know then. I was like so hyped up about everything that we were doing. That was kind of like my entry point. And 
I think we also had this whole dialogue about slow fashion, limited production, craftsmanship, quality, thriving communities. They were all on the table and we were making them real. I'm curious to hear more about, you know, you said, I didn't realize it back then. Can you take us a little bit on this journey? And I don't know if there was a moment that was like a light bulb for you or if it was a gradual thing, but how did you start on that journey or what caused, what triggered that shift? And maybe you can give us some context, maybe for where you were, what your role was, you know, maybe who else was part of it. I think it was a buzzword actually. The buzzword was impact. And I was still working for my former company, reporting to the general manager responsible from R&D, product development, sales, marketing. I was on the top of the world. And fast forward to 2017, a pivotal moment for me was at a course at the Singularity University. And again, the buzzword was impact. It lingered in my mind, you know, I was like, we were talking about impact, impact, impact. And I was like, "Mm, am I truly making an impact? And in the course, there were 150 people from all over the world. Um, I felt quite humbled by their experiences. Most of them were startup founders who sold their third company and on their path to bringing on change with the funds they have generated. So they were really like, impact generators. I mean, they were ready to go into the next episode of their lives. And I felt like, oh, okay. And the last day of the course, we were given the question, how do you change the lives of a billion people? That's like everything we've given you within the last past 10 days. This is your mission. You have to change the lives of a billion people. (laughs) And I think that question ignited a passion in me to leverage all the exponential technologies available and all my like past experience, my passion. I was like, okay, I'm up for this. I want to change the lives of a billion people. I didn't know how or what would make this possible. But this very forceful word, the impact word stayed in my mind. And I started having all kinds of questions around it. Was I making impact? Was there a way to amplify the efforts that I was making? And were systems connected? How could I be a force of change and impact this billion people? What was I missing from the whole picture? I came back with all these questions and I truly believed that I had to use my experience and all that I have in a much scaled way. And this was actually when I decided to work for a company in the global south. And of course, I did not know the adventure I was embarking on, (laughs) but a company of scale, and they had very different realities than the ones I had been used to. And I came to realize actually bigger production volumes did not necessarily mean bigger revenues. So that was my first realization. And at that point, I think I realized that there was something truly wrong about the way we were approaching um, the manufacturing industry. The company that I'm currently working for, they're not being asked to deliver less in terms of quality or sustainability because they are in a geography where where some 
costs are lower. It's not compensating for the business they are being provided for. The CSR initiatives to improve the lives of the people working in the company or in the whole network that the company was reaching out to, the sustainable infrastructure needed a louder voice. I mean, we weren't even calling these CSR projects. They were just like coming because of the whole community, the way the community was structured. But they were actually CSR projects. So that company was doing things that people would probably label sustainability or CSR, but it wasn't calling it that. No. Is that what you mean? Yes. And they were designing it according to their own needs, according to the needs of the people in the region, rather than a dictated version of part of a due diligence, I would say. Somebody telling them, hey, we want you to do this. And by somebody, you mean the customer, the brand or the retailer or? The customer, the brand, the regulation, whatever, whoever we call it, you know. Right. But then being there, I could really envision a different perspective of the working conditions and the business landscape. And it was not easy. It wasn't always pretty. It's not always pretty. And production was ongoing in an area devoid of clean drinking water. And the need to conserve water was not because it was nice to have, but it was a necessity. And it had always been there. These companies were conserving water because it was scarce. So the fashion business is live food for millions in the global south. And families' lives depend on their work and they bring food to the table with this work. The resource use is linked to the environment, the water systems, the soil itself. The same thing is valid for energy. The region needed to make use of the solar energy way before due to the, and of course the storage as well, due to the power failures of the grid. And they couldn't tolerate this during their production. I mean, we all know this, water consumption increased sixfold during the 20th century, twice the population growth rate. The brands want to have sustainable business partners, partners again, a sustainable supply chain, right? They always want that. Who gets the actual benefit of telling the story? That's something that we need to really like think about. Who gets to be recognized in the market with that story? Who sets the rules of the game? Nobody, well, I would say majority do not really take care about the manufacturer's reality. And each manufacturer's reality is different from the other. So if we're talking about business relationships, relating needs to have that discussion. What is your reality? What is my reality? What you talk about makes me think about the episode we had with uh, Divya. We discussed about a word, capacity building. And that is often heard when there is a story related to manufacturers. And we discussed in that episode saying, maybe the, the word should be capacity unblocking. As you said, Ibru, you talk about the story that the company develop what the people in that region really need, not develop something fits a standard enforced to them from somewhere else. So just thinking if the supplier's capacity were occupied by 
or used on some standards or some requirements enforced to them from somewhere else for someone else benefits, not for the people living there, then how can they have capacity actually to building up something really good and benefit to the people living in that region? So if the factory were fully busy, which is the, the reality today, to uploading all those data, to doing all those data work to the, for the certifications, how can they, even they know what to do, how can they have that capacity to really do something good for themselves and for the workers and for the farmers community there? Ibru, I want to just go back to your journey for a minute. So you had this shift you had this realization, tell me if I got it right, that sustainability ultimately is maybe contextual is the word, that but has to be based on the reality of a particular company, community, and all the rest. But how did this shift in your ideas about, you know, if you started with this idea that sustainability is just sort of one company doing the best that it can do and showcasing all of the great things that it's doing and using that also to secure, in a way, I guess, a market advantage, which is also important, right? You can't have a business if you're being treated as replaceable or disposable. How did this shift make you feel? And I want to go back to the question that you asked, which was, how do you change the lives of a billion people? And I'm curious to hear more like emotionally from you, how you experienced this transition. Well, I think... I am in the right place. I'm working at the right spot. And I'm trying to actually tell an interconnected story rather than an isolated story. So not the theory part, the theory part of sustainability. And if a person is not truly engaged or interested, the theory part gets quite boring. But then when you start, like Lego blocks, when you start connecting it to the bigger picture, it starts becoming a story. I started a training series called The Climate Crisis in My Wardrobe, and I had the opportunity to create its content anywhere from an hour to six hours. And I reached over 3,000 people, not the billion, but 3,000 people from NGOs, academia, industry insiders, interested, curious citizens, you know, and I'm still counting. I'm like head counting. And I'm also believing in the ripple effect of impact because that's what we need to ignite as well. And also with the company I'm working for, we're creating amazing stories. And we're now trying to make those stories become alive. For instance, we have something called the Denim Curiosity Table. We lay out all the raw materials in a very tactile way. Again, for whomever who wants to visit that table, it's possible to really touch and feel and see the raw materials as well as the processes. So it's like, I want to draw more people in, but not dictating, not in a way maybe educating, but coaching and building the story together. Because I think that's the only way we can really amplify all these impacts that we're trying to bring on. The theory without the experience does not really exist for a long time. 
And that's why we need to make it more experiential, more tactile, and more visible. I mean, we have the tools. We have all these tools of communication possible right now. So why not use them? And I'm recently reading a book called Entangled Life, which, you know, I'm loving. And there's the definition of evolution, which is defined as rolling outward. And it's not capturing the readiness of organisms to involve themselves in another's life. And then there is the definition of involution, which is coming from the word involve. And it better captures the entangled pushing and pulling of organisms constantly inventing new ways to live together. So... You know, I'm trying to really get involved, get entangled and try to bring on this discussion of involvement rather than evolution. I think this is meaningful change. Jesse, what are your thoughts? What images, metaphors, feelings, gestures, emotions come to mind as you listen to what Ibru has shared? Ibru, I like the words you mentioned just now. I will repeat them. Inner collect. Draw more people in, not dictate them. And those experiences not existed for long and involve lotion. So I can't wait to share a book I started to read, but not finished yet. Uh, let me quote exactly what the writer said. So the name is um, The Burnout Society. This is the beginning I read. The past century was an immunological age. The epoch sought to distinguish clearly between inside and outside, friend and foe, self and other. Attack and defense determine immunological action, the immunological dispositive, which extends beyond the strictly social and onto the whole communal life, harbors a bland spot. Everything foreign is simply combated and warded off. The object of immune defense is the foreign as such. Even if it has no hostile intentions, even if it poses no danger, it is eliminated on the basis of its otherness. So what you described, Ibru, is the opposite of this uh, immunological action. And what you said and what I read, I just read the beginning of this book, not finished yet. So everything of what we discussed just now and what I read triggered my thoughts on auditing and the certifications. Auditing. It's more like checking, examining what is complied with a set of standards, usually set up by someone else. And certification is like a vaccine to mark what is on the side of friends and what is on the side of others and what shall be banned and rejected by the system. That's the function of certification is like a vaccine. And I'm not saying traceability or transparency are not necessary. Yes, necessary, but to which level? You see, and, and I think the most important question here is uh, what are we looking for in a system overwhelmingly requiring traceability and transparency and certifications? Are we looking for trust and building trust? Or are we actually looking for security and gain security by marking the others and rejecting them? And uh, from there, I'm also thinking what is the opposite to transparency, actually? I'm thinking the opposite to transparency is not unknown or invisible. It's not something we cannot see. No, that's not the opposite of transparency. I think the opposite should be lacking of trust and inclusiveness. What you mentioned just now, to draw more people in, 
And that's the opposite of transparency. What you are saying makes me also think about sustainability as an end goal or sustainability as a journey. Because if it's a journey, it of course defines the trust. It defines the journey itself, how people can and need to work together. That's all defined. Whereas if it's an end goal, it's a tick in a box. And that's really an end goal. And does it really end there? And not really, you know, I mean. Yeah. If we think not from a highly philosophical idea, but thinking from the practical level, we can also see like a journey, but also like um, today, lots of brands and retailers are on the global north. Lots of producers are on the global south. And if we talk about the history, the culture, the geographic context, the mentality, the way of doing things are so different from those societies. But does that mean the downstream of the supply chain needs to certify each action, choices, behavior of the upstream of the supply chain to feel secured? Do we really need to do that? And also when the system, as you said, a box, when the system emphasizes a lot on certifying, it shows a high level of variety and which leads to disempowerment, actually. But I don't like the word empowerment. Empowerment means someone else to give power to that person. I don't like the word empowerment. So I would say we should have a different system. A system that having trust, a strong system that we can include and also embrace and also learn from the differences of everyone and also learn the differences, learn from the foreign, the otherness. I think that's the problem today, not how much or to which level we need the transibility or transparency, but more like the whole idea behind what are we looking for? Are we looking for to have? more trust and building the trust, or are we looking for to feel more secured by certifying almost everything in the supply chain? It's interesting because a lot of people talk about certifications, I think, as a tool of trust, right? Like we need certifications for the consumer to trust us or for, you know, the brands and retailers to trust their manufacturers or, you know, whatever. And I feel like certifications and audits in many ways are talked about as a tool of trust. But I think, Ibru, I would go back to your point, which is certifications are a way of having quote unquote trust. I put it in air quotes for people who can't see without entanglement, without codependence, and that's, for me, what really strikes me about what you're saying is, I think, that trust requires entanglement. It requires an acknowledgement of interconnectedness and codependence and the way that we're, at least I'll speak for myself, one of like the beliefs or assumptions that has shifted in my own point of view about how sustainability should be done is that and I know that this is abstract and people will probably say, but what does that mean in practice? But, you know, that conceptually we have to shift from approaches that are sort of focused on protecting or isolating the self, whatever that entity might be, towards something that is actually in sort of open acknowledgement and recognition of the ways in which we are interconnected and codependent and the ways in which like I cannot achieve my goals 
without engaging and recognizing how all these other entities who are outside of my control also have to do something for me to achieve my goals. Yes, you are defining a trust-based relationship. And I just want to give a very practical example, simplify it down, like, you know, pressuring a manufacturer to convert to biomass when biomass resource is not available will not work. However, working together with that manufacturer to redefine that landscape to seek other alternatives of biomass will be very inclusive and it will create other dialogues. And that is trust-based. I mean, the manufacturers are being pressured to act in a certain way because we're not having these open dialogues as well. We're all concerned about the capacities. We're all concerned about, again, it's, you know, putting food on people's tables. So those dialogues need to be ensured in a trust-based environment so that they're possible. Can I ask you, what would you say, because I talk to a lot of people who are not working in manufacturing, who are working in sustainability jobs, either for NGOs, you know, whatever, or sometimes even brands and retailers, and they say, well, we want to engage our supply chain, but... You know, it's so hard to get them to talk to us or to engage in the conversation or to get them to speak openly, which I I always kind of half laugh at and half feel really sad about because, I mean, where do you begin with a question like that? But, I mean, I understand the intention and I understand the reality. What would your response be to somebody who might say that to you? It's building blocks. We have to start somewhere. We have to start on this building the relationship journey And of course, we need to have statistics, we need to have certain parameters, that for sure. But everything is not just numbers, everything is not just statistics. That is the dialogue that we need to really, I mean, the brands can take the first step instead of the manufacturers taking the first step always. That could be something, that could be a starting point. And I think trust is built on history, so we have to build that history initially. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because it's something that I think about a lot. Like I think if I didn't have to worry about making a living or, but let's say I didn't have to worry about any of that, what would I want to do? And I often think about this point on history, almost the need for a revisionist history of some kind of where this idea of sustainability or unsustainability even came from. Because I feel like, you know, sustainability has very particular origins in the fashion sector, but also beyond fashion, very particular origins designed to serve a very particular group of people. And I don't know that that's necessarily commonly understood. And even myself, I feel like I'm missing a vocabulary for talking about that, for talking about, well, where did this way that we do sustainability come from? And I often find myself feeling like if I had a vocabulary for talking about that, for expressing that, then it would also be a lot easier to talk about maybe how we move forward. Because at the moment, if you say, well, pick your sustainability tool or concept, whatever it is. But if you're like, I am not sure about this, or I'm not sure about that, you're kind of like attacked as 
not having enough commitment to the cause or not caring enough or not having the right values when and then you spend your time focused on that you know like oh you're a bad person cuz you whatever believe in this or have said that and it's hard to sort of decouple debates and conversations in sustainability from intention and whether some good people bad people these sort of binaries when you don't have a vocabulary for talking about the history or for where an idea or an approach came from. Yeah, that's why I love the book Worn by Sophie Tenhauser. I mean, she says after all our clothing don't just come ready made from factories or from countries named on their tags. They come from our histories. And I love this. How little do we know about the history of materials and how they are connected to power, progress, finance, people? It's all of these, again, new vocabularies that we need to explore. And I think this is the beauty of it because there's so much to discover constantly. And when I think that I'm getting into a very rigid framework of concepts, I stop and I take a deep breath and I call this a journey, not an end result. So that just calms me down. And then I think I can bear with the fear of being called out, not being informed enough, because I'm not. And I should be able to say that there's so much to learn, so much to still connect, because if once we start thinking about the entanglement, There's so much to connect and so much to learn from each other as well. But it's also uncomfortable, right? In the sense that it requires an acknowledgement of again I'm going to use the word entanglement. But entanglement now I mean it in sort of a different way, but acknowledgement of the ways in which we are implicated and res- have contributed to or are, you know, somehow responsible for a sector that currently doesn't operate in a way that is very just and it requires talking about i think inequity and the history of that inequity and how do we shift that and it's it's hard i mean i've said this before in the context of i was involved in a paper by Transformers Foundation where i also work about the denim supply chain's perspectives on decarbonization and i sort of see the contribution of that paper which came out in november of last year as sort of giving a vocabulary for talking about how the sector's approach to decarbonization has implicitly made responsibility for decarbonization a supplier burden we don't say this explicitly in the paper but for me at a conceptual level the contribution of that paper is to give people the language for articulating how the sector's approach to climate action has made responsibility a disproportionately supplier burden because it's very hard to talk about a collective approach to climate action or any other issue if we haven't first articulated how and why the current approach is not collective is not equitable you know where responsibility is not shared and people kind of said oh well what's the point of just like talking about explaining how this is a supplier burden this is just you're giving people a 
supplier is just like a space to complain or whatever. And I said, no, for me, this is really the first step. And that's the thing in the sector right now, there are so many calls for a collective approach. Everybody, it's like everybody's favorite buzzword. We need a collective approach. We need shared responsibility, blah, 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 blah. As if it's a transition, as if it's something new. But you can't shift to something new and say, hey, we're going to shift to a collective approach or we're going to shift to shared responsibility if there isn't consensus and a vocabulary for talking about how the current approach is not shared, is not collective, is not equitable. I think it's going back to the history. And before we understand the history, we cannot build the future, I would say. Cliche, but definitely so. And... To even understand that history, we have to have that common understanding. And we made mistakes before and we'll be making mistakes in the future as well. But at least we can learn from the mistakes made so that we can avoid the part of those mistakes being made in the future. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.